I'm Mark Haywood and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. How many weddings have you gone to where you don't really know very many other people at the wedding (laughs) and it's trying to make those connections of who is who? Wedding days, the happiest day of your life. And they would be, if not for other people. The dramas begin just deciding which family members are even going to receive an invite. Then, once the big day itself comes and you've brought together a cast of characters, some estranged from one another, some completely new faces, weddings can become the perfect breeding ground for conflict. And the worst bit? You had no clue any of this would unfold. Perhaps you didn't know your guests as well as you thought you did. I mean, if you got married even just a few years ago and stopped to think about who came, you'll often end up scratching your head wondering why some people made the cut. And who the hell is that in the group photo? The drama of a wedding is where we find ourselves in the novel This Family. Set across a single summer's day, we explore the complex bonds of family as Mary's relations gather for her wedding. I am delighted to say that the book's author, Kate Sawyer, is my guest today. Chapter 1, Inspired by Chekhov. Kate Sawyer's first novel, The Stranding, was shortlisted for the Costa First Novel Award and follows the story of Ruth, who climbs into the mouth of a beached whale to escape the apocalypse. I mention this because, as Kate will go on to explain, both stories were influenced by one writing experience, and yet as far as plot goes, they feel worlds apart. This family is the story of a wedding which has brought a fractured family together for the first time in years. Told by a chorus of characters and punctuated with memories from the past, the novel is an exploration of the small moments that bring us to where we are, the changes that are brought about by time, and what, despite everything, stays the same. So, seemingly quite different to The Stranding, how did this family stem from a similar place? How did it come about? I pitched this family, not as this family, I pitched it as pigs, about sisters that don't get on with each other. And that was based from a play that I'd written as part of a writing challenge, but before I was published, before I'd actually written The Stranding. So before I'd written any novels, I'd written this short, well, actually it was a three-act play, but it was short, you know, it wasn't a a full-length play. And that was from a writing challenge called 28 Plays Later that runs every February where you get a prompt in the evening and you write a play in response to the prompt, send it back by the next evening. And that actually was also where the seed of the idea for The Stranding came from, a short play that I'd written the previous year. But the attempt that I made with this short play was I had a whole day which is rare for me back then still now um to write so I wanted to write something longer form than I'd managed for all of the other days and having been an actor I was really interested I am really interested in these like well particularly Chekhov the sort of Russian huge plays my particular interest in them is what you see on the surface versus what's going on underneath. 
yeah, I mean, if that's everyone's interest in plays, we'll stop. But also the characterization or the archetypes that are expanded into full characters. And I was thinking about where we were. So that was 20, it was the very beginning of 2019 that I wrote this short play that turned into this family later on. And I was thinking about the sort of polarisation in society and Brexit and how it would be interesting if you gave each of these characters a sort of archetype in these polarised arguments, but put them in the same family, what dynamic that would create dramatically, which is, of course, what Chekhov did. So I was just trying to <laughs> trying to emulate that, but for our times and in the UK, that was the idea and it just came out really as people arguing but not arguing on the surface and that idea stayed with me I pitched it when I pitched The Stranding and I sat down to write it once the deal or the edit had been done on The Stranding but I couldn't like quite work it it felt like I had put too many restrictions on myself and I had this other idea <laughs> that had a little bit more of a magical element to it. The Stranding has this, requires a sort of suspension of disbelief. It has a device that can either be seen as a device or a sort of magical realism where someone survives the end of the world by hiding inside a whale during a, an apocalyptic event. And I felt as though having been published with that, you know, this was pre-publication, but as that had been lifted up and and was being put central of the campaign for the book that I needed to find another sort of magical realism thing so I started writing this other idea that had a more sort of magical realism element to it but I just couldn't quite make the story work and for a time I was going between the two things the like family drama and the slightly magical realism thing and I was trying to find my way and then we got close to publication and my my agent said to me, you really want to try and choose one of these now. And my editor said to me, you really want to try and get this book finished by the time your book's published. And I was like, right. So I just chose to stick with this family, even though it wasn't necessarily the sort of right choice publishing wise. It just felt like I had a whole story there. And so I pursued it and realized that if I was thinking about it like Chekhov, then maybe I should include what you would do to rehearse a Chekhov, which is to improvise or fill out the past of these characters on that day. And that's where the structure came from that started to free me up, that I could start imagining the backstories of these characters. So an accidental novel came out of this. That I, I love that. I mean, what you've what you've done is you, you've set this up. So for people that haven't read the book, you set this up very quickly. We all get together on one day to celebrate Mary's wedding, and we are all told that under pain of death, we are to behave ourselves, and we are not allowed to do anything to upset the day. And then you sit back and over the course of 300 and something pages, what can go wrong does go wrong. And we learn that this family is just as dysfunctional as our own. So that makes us feel good about it. But that's interesting because it's so layered. It is very Chekhov in the sense that it's so incredibly layered. 
and it reminded me, as I think I said in my notes to you, of, of my own family, which is very large and very dysfunctional at times. But you're very patient with your explanations of who everybody is. There's a lot for us to learn about mm. who's who, who's married to who, who used to be married to who, who's got family secrets, who came to the family late in terms of Rosie in particular. But I loved that because it needs time to breathe, in my view. And you certainly gave it that because you could, if you had wanted, and I have read books that do this, you could have basically just told me that in a family tree at the very beginning. But I liked how you didn't. And it took me a long time to figure out who everybody was. And and that, that really held my interest. Was that deliberate? Yeah, it was. I mean, I almost chickened out about it at different points, thinking, am I asking too much of a reader? But as always, I sort of went with my gut and thought, no, what I like as a reader is to discover. And I like that as a, a when I'm viewing television as well. I mean, I think one of the reasons, one of the many reasons that The Bear has been so successful is that they don't tell you who the characters are or why they have this behavior some of them even until the second series it's all about I suppose you're being thrown into a situation and particularly this is a wedding day right my book's a wedding day and how many weddings have you gone to where you don't really know very many other people at the wedding (laughs) and it's trying to make those connections of who is who I think we do that every social engagement really and it was something I sort of wanted to recreate for the reader to like have them trying to work it out who who is who. Chapter two back and forth through time. At various points in this novel we move from the big day backwards and forwards through the decades of pieces of information are slowly revealed. And through this we're invited to decipher the depth of connections between the characters, peering beyond the surface level interactions. Here Kate has made a very distinct literary choice. The big day itself is written entirely in the present tense, which gives it immediacy and also, annoyingly, makes it very hard to second-guess what was going on, which, if I'm honest, I loved. And then she drifts back into the past tense when talking about the past. I wondered whether her choice of tense started out that way, or if it was something she realised she wanted to do through the writing process. My natural tense is present tense. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not really sure why. Like when I start writing, I immediately start there. I think it's because I'm talking about sensation and things like that. So yes, in the same way that I did with The Stranding, I wrote in the present tense. With The Stranding, I decided to keep it like that because I didn't want it to be clear which was, if it was the past or the future or any of those things. But with this, I felt the distinction between the past and the present was important to achieve because I'm again asking quite a lot of the reader because the memories that surface of the different characters it's I mean it's multi-perspective asking quite a lot of the reader there I'm not giving them a lot of information up front as to well I suppose I'm not spelling out who's who and I needed to anchor them in the past so the tense 
is part of that saying this is set in the past this is a memory whereas I also because I haven't put 1981 London at the top of the chapter I'm asking the readers to sort of sit with me and know that that date isn't the most important thing about it but there are anchors within the text, there are cultural references that should you wish, should you be the sort of person that needs to know what time this is, um, exactly what day this is, they'll be able to work it out from the clues in the text. And so it's part of the clue, I suppose, yeah, that I came to before I handed in my first draft, but quite far along the process. So it was changing. It's extremely effective because many of these characters, all of them, in fact, apart from Mary, who is looking forward, are still stuck in the past, which is, you know, which is why you're using it, which is which is really smart. But I've mentioned this on this show before, but Hilary Mantel uses or used the present tense in Wolf Hall to extremely effect, impressive effect, because her point, and I remember an interview with her once where she said, you know, even if you'd have lived around the time of Henry VIII, even when he'd had his third or fourth wife, you would never have predicted he would go on to have six. Yeah. And so we're second guessing if we're using anything other than the present tense. And in a way, once you'd set this up where it was a wedding day where people had been told to be on their best behavior, I'm all in because I know stuff's <laughs> going to go wrong and I know I'm going to learn stuff about it. And there's probably, if I'm guessing and I were to meet her, there's probably a load of this stuff that Mary doesn't know. That yes. she's not aware of, which has been kept from her, which is which is really good. So I felt as if I was learning more than they would ever dare tell Mary. Yeah, and that, I, and that's the thing. Actually, as the reader, you get a three sixty on how people feel or how people have behaved previously, and it's interesting because what that does really is I mean it starts with Mary so people and it's her wedding day and we all like to think of who's the central character in this book but really it is a cast of characters and they all morph throughout the process as you discover more about them as your sympathies I think the reader's sympathies I hope change as well and I hope as well, as this is what I love about multi-perspective, both writing and reading it, is that it draws into question whether people are, can be good or bad, or whether their actions as such make them who they are. It's really interesting, the, the effect that that your style of writing has on somebody like me is, I love fully committing to characters in the knowledge that they may well do things that upset me or make me feel sad or disappoint me. And in a way it's, it's almost like an unconditional love for these people because you know that at some point take Phoebe, for example, that Phoebe's going to do something stupid. And again, you know, you don't disappoint in that regard, but there is a, a section that I mentioned in my notes to you. And I think it's, I think it's Michael's POV. I just want to read it because it's it's the end of the chapter and it reads, and it was a long time ago, a lifetime ago, but he does remember. And pretty much every other chapter when it's not in the present head, pretty much every other chapter ends like that, you yeah. know, on some kind of cliffhanger. And it makes you think, oh, that's fascinating because Phoebe has 
assumed that he wouldn't remember and now we're learning that he does so at some point we're going to come back to that or it won't be important but it's important enough to say it here yeah which made me think that there is a phrase that I've used on here before which is that in every two-person conversation there are six people the two people as they see each other the two people as they see themselves and the two people as they really are now in your cast and it is a big cast of characters there are hundreds of variations of people who are there And I found it interesting that Mary doesn't know hardly any of them. You know, it's fascinating that actually you think it's going to be her story. And really, her wedding day is the arc that's driving everything. And each time we keep coming back to the present, I'm seeing the wedding differently because you've just shown me something else. It was really rich, really layered. How long did it take you to write? Because I I read it very quickly because I I read a lot of books, but it it feels like this was a complex piece of plotting for you. How much much check off and improvisation did you have to do before you started writing? So I don't really plan or imagine before I write. That's not entirely true. There is sort of like something... There are lots of ideas and a sort of feeling of a message. A message is wrong. I don't know. That's not really the right thing. I I sort of know what I want to talk about. (laughs) It's sort of like going into a conversation or an argument, more like going into an argument, knowing what you want to talk about before you sit down. (laughs) But then, like an argument, it moves and you end up arguing about something else. And it is, I'm, I'm not a plotter. I would really like to be, I am writing my third novel, what I hope will be my third novel at the moment. Always have to preface, always have to put in that. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm I'm writing what I hope will be my third novel at the moment, but it is this like ebb and flow of discovery and what I thought I was gonna write, these scenes that I've had in my head, I'm gonna come to them in a different way because as soon as I start putting the argument down on the page, the characters, I'm constantly trying to think, is that believable? Is that true? Above my desk, I have Veritas in a print that I bought from the V&A. And that is what I'm trying to get at. I'm just trying to get at some truth. So it takes a long time. A two hour writing session might actually involve more deletion than it involves addition. That being said, once I found it, I can sort of, in the same way, like when you read a book, you're trying to get into it, trying to work out who people are. I then sort of like run towards the end. So like I said, I've been dancing around this story, this idea before The Stranding came out. I'd had a lot of words on the page. I'd removed a lot. I'd lost stuff. And then once the book came out, I knew that I was supposed to have done it by then. And I felt like I had to do it. So I just sort of ran at the end and I finished it by September, which at the time I felt like, oh, I've handed in my manuscript late. But that itself really was, you know, that's so quick <laughs> to have written basically what was half a novel. It's just that I've done a lot of the working out by deleting things previously. And then I love editing. And I just think what you discover in the edit with the, not instruction, but questions that are asked by a good editor makes you interrogate it even more and that is where I think plot reveals itself but that's that's what I find so interesting it it feels 
the basis of interesting literature is for me is somehow divorced from what the industry sort of puts foot forward as far as plot and or you know big big things because really for me there's like or oh, there's some just such clever stuff where you're sort of trying to discover the truth of a character or even a situation and that isn't splashy it's deep but not sort of marketable in a way <laughs> well if i think about the books that i get sent and the press releases that i get asked if i'm interested in i think the industry let's stay here for a second is championing these sorts of stories it put me in mind of georgina moore's the garnet girls which is the same sort of story in that it's about family dysfunction and it moves backwards and forwards it has a very good sense of place and i think that stories like that are appealing because everybody comes from a dysfunctional family yeah, yeah. it's just what's, what's different is the nature of the dysfunction right and, and i think that you know my my own family there's a there's a michael and there's a richard you know there's a there's a rosie in my family you know they're all they're all characters that i that can relate to and it, it sort of it gets you thinking you know people must look at me and see dysfunction. <laughs> you know, you really, you really get quite self-aware actually, because you think we are all collectively part of the dysfunction. That's why families are great, right? That's why we love our families. But, you know, as an outsider, it can be very intimidating. And that's why I think I loved how you wrote this because I am to all intents and purposes an outsider, but I feel that I'm getting more information than Mary. So in the in a way, I'm less of an outsider than Mary because I'm seeing, you know, I'm seeing the truth. But I think I think what I'm trying to say is that the industry is looking at this and, and seeing stories like yours and Georgina's and going, there's a massive market for this because it's real. Everyone can relate to it in some way. And maybe it makes us feel a little less bad about our own dysfunction when we see it in others. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that, though. I think it's something that we have a great history of, actually. I think that people like Elizabeth Jane Howard with the Cazalet Chronicles. I mean, I suppose we're talking about family saga here yeah. and the difference between family saga and state of the nation novels, which is what you would call my novel, Were I a Man. Uh, you know, it, it's it, that's the difference. That's, that's the difference. so true. It's. I mean, I really loved uh, Paul Murray's The Bee Sting. It's on the Booker long list this year. I hope it will make the shortlist. I hope it will win. I think it's brilliant. But I spoke to Paul about that book and he's just like, yeah, I went and did a thing at university and I was introduced as a state of the nation novelist. And I was like, I write about families. And, you know, but they are, of course, if you're covering an expanse of time, if you're talking about the truth of our dysfunctions, um, they cannot help but be a state of the nation novel because we do not, our little families ourselves, do not exist in a vacuum. Chapter three, The Willow. On the very first page of this book is a visual image that sets up the story beautifully, a novel about what's unseen more than what's seen. Kate paints a beautiful picture of a willow tree that stands in the garden of Mary's home where the wedding takes place. The metaphor of a tree is like gold dust for a writer. It immediately evokes a sense of mystery and unknown. 
So much of a tree lies beneath the surface, its roots more integral to its survival and its history than anything else we can actually see. Yet what's underground is secret, and if you want to dig it up, you are sure to cause damage. I love the way Kate gave me both a stunning visual description of the wedding itself and also showed me what can't be seen, capturing the essence of the story to come. Oh, I'm delighted. Thank you. I mean, the willow, I did get really hung up on that willow <laughs> when I was I writing. Loved it. You know, I did quite a bit of research about willows. I found out that they live as long as a human. I mean, they're like, because we think of trees, right? We see these trees and we think, oh, they'll be there after I've gone because some trees obviously do. But they still only live like a century. They're, they're living things that die. And I just hadn't ever realised that a willow really only lives like 80 to like 70 to 80, 90 years max. Mm. How weird. Yeah. <laughs> That's so weird. And it just struck me as like really strange, but then like perfect when I'm sort of talking about the brevity of life and all of this. And the, so they found out how they like plant themselves by water. And then it was absolutely sort of like not helpful to my book to have loads of stuff about the willow because it's not really about the willow but at the same time it is about the willow it is about the willow it's absolutely about the willow but you know I that's sort of cutting all of the stuff that I wrote I cut loads of stuff that I wrote about the the planting of the tree really early on before I'd even handed in my first draft so it, it makes less of a an appearance but sometimes that's what I'm talking about really you have to write all of this stuff to embed it into the text to achieve you seeing that and going oh I see you don't need the you know three chapters of other nature writing that I might have put in there (laughs) could have put in there that I didn't feel like it was right you mentioned Paul and Paul isn't the only writer that you've spoken with you host your own podcast called Novel Experience I wanted to ask you and, and I would encourage listeners to go and check it out because there are some fascinating guests on. And it's also interesting, I think, to hear interviews with different hosts with the same guest. That's what yeah. I always find that interesting because you always get you always get a little bit more. Has hosting the podcast and talking to other writers, do you think that has changed you as a writer? Yeah. You know, one of the things that it has done is it has made me read outside of my personal interests really I would read similar books to that that I write like sort of ad infinitum really but reading more rom-com reading more thriller reading crime reading books that are more commercial than mine reading books that are more literary than mine it's really helpful to understand what those terms mean or, you know, the authors themselves might not even see themselves as that, but it's really helpful to see, to understand a bit more about what your writing is. I can recognise more style and things like that. But I have to say, you know, your podcast really interrogates what's between the covers. Um, But mine is about the experiences of these writers. And it's interesting because we've talked about what interests me about writing is sort of uncovering who people are, what this backstory is to understand a bigger picture. That really is what I'm doing on the podcast. I've realized that I'm not 
I talk about their books a bit. I do read them. And sometimes when I've done the podcast recording, I think, oh, did I really need to read that book? Because I really, I was interviewing them about themselves and how they became a writer and why they do the things they do to write rather than about the book. I mean, I think it is a uh, good practice and it's really helpful to me as a writer. But yeah, I think it helps me understand that you don't have to do it a certain way. I'm someone that's not mad on rules, full stop. In fact, if you give me a rule, I will generally try and do the opposite. So it is really, it really makes me realise that there isn't a right way to do this. It frees me to just sort of play and write my book and nobody else's, which I think is in a way the hardest thing once you're published and why they talk about this second book syndrome is because you feel as though you have to live up to yourself, but you also become aware that your book is a product and therefore it needs to be marketable. And therefore you need to write something oh, that has got a good hook or a good, that's gonna be easy to write something marketable <laughs> about it. So yeah, I don't know, it, all of those things. Plus it's just some company, isn't it? Because writing is a, lonely <laughs> a lonely thing to do on sitting on your own every day and so to talk to other authors it just reminds you that actually you might not be in the same room but you are part of a community sitting in front of a blank page or a blank sheet of paper is among some of the loneliest work that you can do and I think about it like this Kate I think about it in these terms which is that when as writers, when one of us wins, we all win. Yeah. And, and you talked about, you know, the booker and the shortlist is imminent, isn't it? And I think about the sheer talent on display mm -hmm. is staggering. And rather than being intimidated by it, it makes me want to double down and try harder because I can see what human beings are capable of producing. And it's, it's, it's astonishing. But I do think voice is really important and, and authenticity is really Im Im important. And I think that is part of the commerciality of it is that, you know, you, you know what you're, you know what you're getting. The reason I asked the question about, you know, changing you as a writer is because I, I recently wrote to a writer that I'd interviewed and I said, look, I've been hired to write this, this script. Would you mind if I borrowed this device? She was like, take it. She went, I think I borrowed it from someone else. I was like, yeah. all right, great. And it came from a totally different genre, one that I would never have read if I was like, right, I want to read just for me. Yeah. I would never have read it. I would never have picked it off the shelf. I read it. I loved it. I loved it so much that it stuck with me. And, and I was like, I, this device is really, really clever. And, and I guess back to what you said earlier about 28 plays later, I would encourage everybody to do that. I certainly encourage people that ask me, for writing exercises at the beginning of every year is look this is on every year it's intensive yeah. right but yeah yeah it's full on it, it is but at the end of it you'll have an idea which is turned into you know this book which which Two i think books. yes exactly <laughs> are you by chance off to cheltenham this year i am yeah i'm going to be in discussion with georgina moore we're talking oh, really about, yeah yeah <laughs> oh, well, there you uh, are. Okay. author of the garnet girls so we are discussing sisters in literature and of oh, course great. sisters in both of our novels are sort of central to it funny I was 
inspired by Chekhov and obviously there's three sisters at the center of my book but hers also has three sisters and it really interestingly similar age groups we're writing about women in their late 30s early 40s then with parents that are pushing 70 or seven in their 70s yeah Jordan and I slightly different ages but at the same time I think it's really interesting that we've set them around that time frame and this the differences in generations as well um it's really interesting that our books are really quite different but have so many similarities in them so excited to talk to her about that so if you're heading to Cheltenham look out for that particular session well good luck with that good luck with the manuscript for book three and with the continuing podcast but for now this family is out now it is an absolute triumph Kate Sawyer it's been a pleasure thank you thank you so much Mark Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Kate Sawyer for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? Don't place too many restrictions on yourself before you head into writing a novel. Particularly for your second book, you may feel hamstrung by wanting to live up to your past successes or your new knowledge of the industry. Try to tap into the naivety you had as a brand new writer with no expectations. The most interesting parts of a story or character are often what lie beneath what we can see. Dig into the unseen world when you're writing. Pull the listener back in time if you have to. The industry is pushing these types of novels. Perhaps you can join the fray. And finally, writing can be a lonely experience. Surround yourself with like-minded souls. You don't need to start a podcast like Kate and I have done, but it does pay to become part of a wider community of writers for those times when you feel like you're in it alone. Staggeringly, that is a wrap for Series 8. Eight. I can't believe I'm even saying that, and I couldn't have done it without your support. So thanks so much for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. You can also sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London. Titled Inside Stories, these events are not recorded and not repeated and are designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Series 9 is already in the works, and to be honest, so is Series 10. So this really isn't the last you'll hear from us at Behind the Spine. In fact, it's very much just the beginning. Goodbye for now, stay safe, and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 